the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You know, when you think about your relationship with others, so much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psycho pharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science and brain science is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. 
we hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, you know, the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers, so you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and the enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be in full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God uh, based on maybe the, the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God? You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and things changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the Crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to imposed rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's uh, what's, uh, striking is that most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non 
Christian, somebody in a Wiccan camp worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking though is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed him, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I... um was challenged by my faculty who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have down on those who do look on God as somehow being, un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way and so they really challenged us and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept and uh, these ideas were very challenging for me and I had the premise that okay, I believe God is real if he is real then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's word and not have to simply say, well, I believe and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there. And it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, etc., etc., find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint uh, on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even is a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, and who is self-sacrificial, beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people and I have patients come see me and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion and her pastor told her God was punishing her and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. 
So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors, and this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chron- chronic fear and anxiety going, whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the anterior scene of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong and it doesn't go your way and it doesn't feel good and you just don't you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very god himself we're exploring that equation a look at the god-shaped brain how changing your view of god transforms your life written by dr timothy jennings he's with us tonight we're going to get back to more of the conversation as lifeline continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we gave a mental assent to this around the around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4, 8, a passage of scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally, and yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here and now. Mm. 
Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, We know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that, that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely, and I, and this is what we've shown in in the, in the uh, from the science and from the in the book is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear, and so there's actually neurobiologically there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that, that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man that he lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children. If their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical. Love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly father who would sacrifice his only begotten son on our behalf, and we, we some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug crazed alcoholic uh, driven abusive father, and so the notion of being able to equate a loving heavenly father who sacrifices his son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right, and that is a barrier for some people, our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. We talk about this notion in Scripture of bringing our thoughts into captivity. How can we rewire all of this? Um, you know, this is a great point, and um, I put I point out in the book 
that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that are influenced the proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So pro-BDNF, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then this enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory and you keep practicing, you're firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced and you get more of the fertilizer and it expands and you keep doing it and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate and 20 years go by and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior, but can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit, you're still producing the enzyme, you're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger, and so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in. If they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the, the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect, oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violence video games or or television programs and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this so if if then there has been a long process of training so to speak the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and and as a result um, has has set up this balance Boundary, uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships we mentioned a moment ago. How do we retrain that process? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, in our book, we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence. And we've, and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are scripture, 
All scripture is given by God for inspiration, inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. The scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then scripture alone without the other two, I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach, and I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and, and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the... the uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and, and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. Reason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're all aware of the tsunami that hit here. Was it 2003 or something? And you talk about the way in which it decimated so much of uh, the... Um, just lost the name of the country. Indonesia. Thank you, Jarrell. Drawing a blank here. Decimated so many parts of Indonesia. And of course, this island chains had something like 7,000 islands in it and, and, and so many different people groups. And, and sadly, a lot of those that were impacted were uh, individuals that, that had nothing. And by the time the tsunami had rolled through and done its devastation, uh, had even less. And of course, tremendous loss of life. We remember that story. Were you aware of another tsunami that hit? Going back a few years, back to 1998, 
that uh, that impacted another part of that uh, that region of the world down off the coast of Australia um, in New Guinea. And there, too, not unlike the big tsunami that hit Indonesia uh, in 2003 or so, uh, the devastation and loss of life was severe, it was deep, it was significant. Sadly, the story of this did not make the headline news, but the aftermath of the manner in which God helped rescue so many people impacted by all of this and the ability of the Christian community to come together and to support one another in the face of the the devastation, even as we count the devastation of what's transpired in the last month in uh, in uh, the result or the wake of, of Hurricane Sandy, uh, fresh in the mind of all of us. It's an amazing story of um, not just simply tragedy, but how God can turn a horrific tragedy into a story of hope and ultimately transformation. We're joined now by John and Bonnie Nystrom. They are involved with uh, the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and we'll tell you a bit about that amazing ministry if you're not familiar with it a little bit later on in our conversation. Uh, John and Bonnie have written a new book detailing the uh, effects of that tsunami of 1998 on uh, Papua New Guinea and the aftermath, the story of of hope and restoration found inside the pages of their new book called Sleeping Coconuts. And John and Bonnie Nystrom, great to have you on the program. Yes, hello, Craig. Hi, Craig. Good to join you. John, tell us first what uh, what first led you and Bonnie down to this part of the world. It's off the coast of Australia. Most folks outside of basic geography don't know much about that part of the world or uh, this this amazing uh, region of that part of the island that uh, I was surprised to find out recently. Boy, talk about cultural diversity. Over 841 different Languages. Some folks didn't realize that many existed in the, in, the, in the entirety of the history of the world, let alone in one small region of the world. That's right, yeah. Papua New Guinea is the most linguistically diverse uh, country in the entire world, over 800 languages, as you said. And um, that's part of the reason why we went there, because there are so many people there who don't have God's Word in their own language and are trying to, and some believers there, pastors, trying to preach God's Word out of um, a translation that most of the people that they're preaching to don't really understand very well. And uh, we believe everybody deserves to have the Word of God in the language that they understand best. And that's what uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators is all about. And um, so that's why we we went to Papua New Guinea, because of the great need there. And, you know, I want to spend a moment talking about this before we get into the details of tsunami and the aftermath. When we talk of the need for individuals to be able to read God's word in their own language, people kind of stop on that and say, well, wait a minute now. You know, the, the Bible has been translated into so many languages uh, since its origins. Can it possibly be with uh, all the modern technology that we have? And I can go to Google Translate and type in a phrase and instantly, you know, I have it translate for me in a matter of seconds? Can it possibly be that there are parts of the world that certain people groups, even to this day, don't yet have access to God's Word in their own language? Uh, Yes, that's correct. In fact, there are um, 2,000 languages of the world that still don't have the the gospel and the Word of God in their own language. And actually, for the first time in history, that number dropped below 2,000 last year, um, which is a really exciting thing. But the thing that um, makes these languages different than most that you would think of is that these are minority languages, um, sometimes only spoken by a few hundred, a few thousand people. Some groups, of course, are larger, but these aren't the majority languages that people know. 
they're not written there's no alphabet in these languages and they have been marginalized and ignored for most of history so um, for them, um, we believe that God intends for them to hear his word in their language as well. Is there a roadblock here in terms of outreach and evangelism? We know the, the critical 1040 window and all of the emphasis that has been placed on it. I think we certainly understand at a, at a level that the ability of someone to be able to hear or have access to God's word in their own language is important. But is it making that critical of a difference? When you talk about uh, for example, Bonnie, some of these minority people groups where there might be several hundreds, maybe a few thousand people that know the language and that's about the extent of it. And I think to myself, wow, you, you're really not going to pick up on volume <laughs> when it comes to the to making up for the time and the expense that's involved in uh, in, in engaging in a translation, be it uh, translating the Bible uh, you know, into the written word or even perhaps vocally. Uh, yes, that's right, and that's an important question to ask. In a lot of places, some of these languages are nearly extinct. There are very few people that speak them anymore. But I think Jesus set an example, and we, he talked about going after the one and leaving the 99. Um, every individual person um, God is interested in, and so his economy in God's economy, um, he does not um, skimp and save and try to be efficient when he goes after the one that is lost. Yeah, and if I, can, if I can add, when Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations, and nations, you know, we understand that's all people groups, which are very often determined by language, he didn't say go and do that where it's cheap or easy or uh, not remote. And are you seeing results? And I, I almost, with hesitation, ask that question only because so often I think we as as Christians want to go where it's easy. Uh, we love to be able to uh, cast our, our seeds into fertile soil and see uh, huge results, uh, certainly from an American Christian point of view. It's all about the numbers, and we look at the work that... Wycliffe is doing and and your partnership now through the years, John and Bonnie, uh, with the organization and say, wow, traveling so far away to be able to provide God's word to such a small number of people, is it really worthwhile? Is it making a difference? Well, you know, the, the translation of the scripture into the language of, say, 500 or 1,000 people has an impact on those people. God is able to speak to them in the language that they understand, and, and they are able to um, hear that from God himself and not just say, well, I believe this because this person came and told me, or I believe it because that person said it. But they can believe it because they've seen it in God's word. But it's not just those people. It's the next generation. It's their children. It's their neighbors. Neighbors. Uh, we're seeing in um, the, the language project that we're working in now, the pastors that have the scriptures are getting the scriptures are starting to think about the language communities next door. Mm. So it's not just um, a one-for-one. One. It's definitely a multiplication process in terms of um, giving the scriptures to a few, but then it gets passed on to generation and to neighbors. And, and I guess, you know, just thinking back in that scripture in my mind uh, where we are mandated to go out into uh, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. It doesn't say go where it's easy. Uh, go where you can have, find a convenient location to uh, to stay the night at a Hilton Hotel or a Sheridan. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is without 
qualification, and I guess toward that end, to reach all of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't say that it ought to be just the majority people groups or the predominant languages, but even those small people groups, uh, because for every one of whom, as you point out, Bonnie, Christ died, and there can indeed be a multi-generational impact of all of this work. Yeah, that's that's right. And one of the exciting things is that, you know, Bonnie mentioned there's about 2,000 languages that still need scripture, that don't have any yet. That number, for the first time in history, is starting to go down. For the longest time, we've been discovering more languages and finding more people who, who needed needed scripture, and that, that number kept going up. Now the Bible translation movement is accelerating so fast that the um, that, that number is finally coming down. And the, the person who may be the Bible Bible translator for the very last language may now be alive. It may be a young adult at this point, and people who are young adults now may see this entire project of the church, getting the Bible translated into every language, they may see that in their lifetime. Wow. That's exciting. I want to pause on that point, because if this story was simply about the work of Wycliffe and the dynamic things that are taking place in being able to reduce the number of people, groups, and languages that don't have access to God's Word and see more people impacted, uh, that would be a great story in and of itself. But uh, to kind of get into the heart of Sleeping Coconuts is what we want to do in a moment here. And I tell you, uh, when that uh, tsunami rolled through there in Papua New Guinea back in 1998, the, uh, the coconuts were doing anything but sleeping that day. We'll find out what happened as we continue our conversation. John and Bonnie Nystrom with us today. We'll take a time out to get you updated on traffic, then back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation with us today uh, from our friends at Wycliffe Bible Translators. We've got to John and Bonnie Nystrom, and they are sharing some experiences with us um, on the heels of their own encounter with a tsunami that took place back in uh, 1998. Now, uh, John and Bonnie, when we talk about devastation, certainly the pictures that we've seen coming out of Long Island and out of uh, uh, portions of New York and New Jersey in the wake of Hurricane Sandy have been horrific and and unbelievable the amount of suffering that many of the people have gone through there. I mean, whole neighborhoods completely destroyed. But I guess on a level, even the worst of what we've seen here in the television news over the last several weeks kind of pales in comparison to what transpired there in in your part of the world in Papua New Guinea back in 1998. Yes, that's correct. And, um, you know, the, the pictures that we see of the devastation now, um, at least we have pictures to see. And that's where the, the title of the book comes from. When we first flew over the, um, the village after the tsunami, the the thing that struck me the most was that it looked like no one ever lived there. It didn't look devastated. It looked like a beautiful, pristine, clean beach with um, with no evidence that people had ever lived there. Had ever lived there. That's how significant the devastation was. And. Um, when we first heard about the tsunami um, the day after it actually happened, we were about 300 miles away at the National Translation Center, and we were trying, we, we got word that something had happened, we were trying to figure out what happened, of course all communication was cut off. We finally got a hold of a pilot who had flown over the village um, that morning after the tsunami, and 
And we kept asking him, well, could you see this? Could you see that? Could you see our house? Could you see the, the remains of the big church that was there? And finally he just said, stop asking. He said, there's nothing there but sleeping coconuts. And by that he meant coconut trees that just lay flat on the ground, uh, had been knocked down by the waves and were just laying there. So the devastation um, pictures that you saw were, were of places that were miles away, just on the very edge of the tsunami where a few buildings had been knocked down. But right in the center of it, there just was nothing left. Every person, um, every house, everything had been washed off the small sand spit where the people lived into the lagoon and across into the mangrove swamps. And let's help people understand here, John, that the infrastructure is not much to speak of to begin with. I mean, a lot lot of this is is made up of uh, whatever wood that folks can get their hands on, uh, oftentimes, uh, particularly in uh, places of the world that experience uh, hurricanes and monsoons and so forth. Uh, you might be lucky to be able to pull together a bamboo and things of this sort, uh, oftentimes in higher elevations, in order to address all of this. Uh, and there, there really isn't much in terms of the ability of any of these quote-unquote structures or the infrastructure itself to withstand even a mild uh, hurricane, let alone a typhoon. That's right. Yeah, they don't don't normally get hurricanes there. You know, I thought that whole place was really safe because it's so close to the equator that hur- hurricanes can't start spinning there. They don't just get, they just don't get them. Um, but I was wrong about that. It was the, you know there the um, our friends' houses are made out of ninety nine percent of what's in their houses. They grow on their own land, and that other one percent is nails that they buy in town. And that's a town seventeen miles away, and that's where the nearest electricity is. But but no, their homes and ours were no match for three 30-foot waves. Just absolutely uh, that much water can just take everything in its path. Wow. How much or, or how widespread would you say it was the destruction? I think it was only about, uh, I think, 18 miles or so across. Uh, down the coast. And the reason for that was because the epicenter of the earthquake that caused it was just offshore. It, it wasn't very far offshore at all. So um, that was uh, a good thing, that it was so um, so localized. But for the Arabs who live right across from where the, where it, where the earthquake uh, happened, um, they lost a third of the people who speak their language. So for them, it was, you know... Totally devastating. I was going to say, this this has got to be regarded as total devastation. We're talking about 30-foot-high tall uh, waves rolling to shore. And to put that into perspective for our listeners, 30 feet. Uh, We're talking about the equivalent of a three-story building. I'm I'm sitting in a three-story building right now. I can't imagine waves coming in this high, how far into the shore that they would reach. And it would seem to me that wherever they reached, John, they would pull back to sea. Literally, the, the ocean would reclaim everything in its path. Am I right? Uh, yes. What didn't end up in the mangrove swamps was sucked out back to sea. And, you know, this this earthquake that caused the tsunami was actually not that big, and relatively, it was only a 7.1. And so the tsunami itself is probably one of the most studied tsunamis around. And a lot of people came afterwards to, to, um, to figure out what happened. And what they think happened is an underwater landslide that actually displaced the water and sent the waves across. And they were able to determine how tall they were by marks on trees that were left that did actually survive. And they were able to mark and see where the damage on the trees were. 
so these these waves that came across pushed everything inland or in through a lagoon into the mangrove swamps and then began to pull everything back out so a lot of people who were found themselves alive still in the lagoon had to then fight that back current um, to stay within sight of shore or with you know in the stay alive actually so even assuming that they survive all of this they are coming back to the total destruction of their village the total loss of their livelihood family members who are missing and boy talk about seemingly a scenario that is just utterly wrought with hopelessness and let me help but listeners understand FEMA doesn't come to the rescue. Uh, the governor doesn't get on television and appeal for folks to donate to the Red Cross. Uh, you don't have military personnel sweeping in to provide generators and portable water and things of this sort. You're kind of left on your own. You had very little to begin with, and now you've got literally nothing out of which you have to try and rebuild. How did God intervene in this most deplorable of natural disasters? We'll talk about that aspect of the story as our conversation with John and Bonnie Nystrom continues a look at sleeping coconuts, how God can turn a horrific tragedy into a story of hope and transformation. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 